Well, we've had the privilege of the past two Saturdays uh, participate in two of our couples getting married two weeks ago. Mike and Tina uh, got married, and then last night, uh, Alex and uh, uh, Monica got married. And what a joy just to, uh, you know, just pause in our busy lives and to consider God's great work of salvation and sanctification in the members' lives of our church, to consider uh, Mike and Tina and Alex and Monica and just uh, I, I, before the ceremony, I get the opportunities to meet with the couple alone and read the scriptures and pray and share. And uh, you can just sense just their love for Christ, uh, their love for this deep gratitude to God for their salvation, and also their deep love for Christ Church here at Cornerstone. You can see it in their preparation, even in their rehearsal, in the rehearsal meal, how they want to honor uh, Christ and honor Christ Church, even in their preparation for the re- wedding ceremony and the reception, and even just in every way, you can sense the heat of their love for Christ and Christ Church. So it's been a tremendous few weeks, and we just thank God for what the work that God is doing in our bo- body. It looks like one more wedding to go before the end of the year, and uh, nobody else, please let's not <laughs> let's finish out one more wedding. That's it. No, more, there's no more Saturdays open. And then we'll continue on in 2008. Well, for our time this morning, uh, I want to look at Luke 14, 25 through 35. Take a brief break from our study in 2 Timothy to go to Luke 14. Luke 14, 25 through 35. Someone asked me this week, what are the weaknesses of Cornerstone? And <laughs> I said, how much time do you have? I, that's a... Topic that I'm very familiar with, the weaknesses of our body. One of the weaknesses of our body is uh, the church is growing and our leadership, we're young. We're, we're young, right? We are young. Um, Bob and I, Marcus, we're young men. And uh, as young men, it's, as Christians, generally, we do well under trials and persecution. Christians generally do not do well during times of prosperity and success. And one of our potential great threats of our body is uh, our ministry is growing and flourishing and we're young and great temptation for us to be proud, temptation for us to compromise, great temptation to boast in ourselves rather than in Christ. Um, so it prompted me to consider the example of Christ. How did he deal with uh, the time when his ministry was flourishing? When his ministry was growing, his his fame, it was being his, his name was being spread out far and wide, masses of people, I mean tens of thousands were following, clamoring after him. How did Christ respond? I wanted to consider that and have that inform me and inform all of us as we experience times of great joy, even success even and prosperity in our lives and our ministry. Um, we see Christ's example here in Luke 14, 25 through 35. These masses of people are following after him, and this is how he addressed them. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it began, begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. 
It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Here we see uh, three cannots of Christ. I almost titled this sermon, Cannot Cubed, right? Cannot, cannot, cannot. An impossibility. Outwardly, you can follow after me, but inwardly, if you do not hate people that are most precious to you, closest to you, you cannot be my disciple. Now, physically, you can follow after me. I can't stop you from being part of this community called disciples. I cannot stop you from being part of this community called the church. But if you love people more than me, spiritually, in your hearts, you cannot be my disciple. In fact, if you love your own life more than me in your hearts, you cannot be my disciple. If you love this world more than you love me, you cannot be my disciple. Three cannots over and over again, emphasizing the high cost of discipleship, the price that Christians pay to be counted with the people of God, the price that Christians have paid from day one of Christ's ministry. When I first became a believer, um, you know, God saved me from an anti-intellectual mindset, uh, began to love reading the Bible and love reading Christian books. And one of the most dangerous places you can take a young Christian is to the local Christian bookstore. Uh, I, would, I would contend that it is one of the most dangerous places, most uh, spiritually life-threatening places a Christian can enter. It is like uh, you know, toys from China. Right? I hope your books you publish print in China aren't filled with lead, but here are all these toys. They're decorated, they're packaged beautifully, they're wonderful, and they find out it contains lead, which is dangerous to children. There was a toy, a popular aqua something toy, little like beads, and uh, some kids, you know, they, 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 they ate it, and it caused them to go into convulsions, and even co- go into a coma because there was toxic poison in the paint. Well, similarly for the Christian bookstore, you go there, and nice packaging, nice covers, you know, nice display, but some of those books are lethal, are dangerous to the Christian faith. And, uh, yeah, you know, I didn't have discernment as a young believer, so I read a lot of books that were, at the very least, like Mickey Mouse books, that were very, of very little help to me in my Christian walk. I read some books that were very dangerous to me in my Christian walk, but God somehow kept me from that, or I, I reaped the consequences of that for many years. But by God's grace, I read a few books early in my Christian years that I, am thank, I thank God for, that I read these books early in my Christian life, and they inform me to this day. One of the books that I read was by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German theologian. He was famous for his stand against Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party. Uh, he was one of those who uh, stood fast against um, the Nazi party co-opting religion for their political purposes. And he held to the cross of Christ later on. He might have gone sour a little bit in his theology, but at least early on he was faithful to the gospel. And... Uh, he would not compromise. He would not uh, join hands with the Third Reich, with the Nazi Party, for political reasons. He was the one, one of the one of the men that conspired to assassinate Hitler, and it was almost successful. And it was for that reason he was sent to the concentration camp. Ultimately, he uh, died in the concentration camp uh, as a direct order under Himmler uh, before they were released by uh, U.S. soldiers. Well. He wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And I thank God, and I, I thank God for that book, and I, I recommend that book to you. He, in his book, he contrasts cheap grace versus costly grace, or cheap grace versus biblical grace. He wrote, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for costly grace. And we are still fighting today in the Christian church for costly grace. Cheap grace means grace sold in the market like cheap jacks wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sins, and the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut-rate prices. Grace is represented as a church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. 
It is grace without price, grace without cost. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must continually knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his whole life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of His only Son. You are bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Amen, brother. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon His Son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered Him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Costly grace is the sanctuary of God. It has to be protected from the world and not thrown to the dogs. He concludes, when Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. He bids a man come come and die. He is contrasting the cheap grace that is proclaimed by the modern church, and the costly grace that is faithfully proclaimed by the Word of God. He was faithful to Christ's message, and we must be faithful to Christ's message. We must be faithful as we continue to grow, not to deviate from the cost of discipleship laid down by our Lord. We must not minimize it. We must not compromise. We must not, we dare not, we have no authority to lower the standards that Christ has laid down because we are not following the elders of Cornerstone Bible Church. We're not following Cornerstone Bible Church. We're not, we're following Christ. So He has laid down the price that all believers pay to be true disciples of Christ. And we can go to numerous passages in the gospel where the Lord sets out the price of discipleship, the requirements, where He delineates His requirements to all who would follow Him. Matthew 10, 32-39 destroys this idea of private faith, of private religion, of a private walk with God. He lays down in Matthew 10, 32-39, Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose I have come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. I have come. This is so radical. I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I heard this week that Monica was sharing the word with her mom. Her parents go to a... They're faithful Catholics. Her mom came to me and was sharing with me Friday night. We're good Catholics. We have a spiritual life. And Monica's sharing all these things and we don't understand. 
my heart. You know, it's Friday night rehearsal dinner. I'm not going to get into a theological, you know, I'm not going to, pres- I'm just going to cause division. I'm not going to bring a sword on rehearsal night. Just, that's not my role at that time. I was just thinking, yes, you know, we're praying for you. We thank God for Monica's faith. And, but in my heart, I was so proud of her. She's standing her ground for Christ and her family. Not in a dishonorable, disrespectful way, but in a humble yet courageous way, she's standing her ground and letting the Word of God unite and divide. Luke 9:23 through 26 our Lord said to all, If anyone will come after me, he must deny who he is. He must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow after me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his own soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man, I will be ashamed of you when he comes, when I come in glory, in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. John 15, 1-8, through 8, and verse 16. How discipleship is not a one-time act. He's not asking, he's not calling for a decision. He's not asking you to walk down the aisle. He's not asking us to pray a prayer. He's not asking us to, to sign a, a contract once and for all. Discipleship is ongoing. It's continual. It's for the whole life. Unto eternity. John 15, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that does not bear fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because the word I have spoken to you remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Verse 5, I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And then verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you to go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. I mean, I'm not picking out a few verses in the, in the Gospels and using that to, to launch into this study of, of lordship, salvation, or discipleship, cost of discipleship. No, it is per, pervasive. It is sown throughout the Gospels and throughout the New Testament. Well, for today's study, we're going to look at Luke 14, 25 through 35. A passage similar. Because it's the same Lord, same demands, and same audience. Give verse 25 the setting. Now great multitudes were going along with him, and he turned to them and said to them. The Pharisees who were in focus around the dinner table in the previous section are now left behind. The focus now is a large crowd of people who are following the Lord as he traveled. I believe that these people were merely curious followers of Christ. They were caught up by Jesus, his miracles, his teachings, the excitement, the the joy, excitement of being with a large group of people and what he was promising. I can envision our Lord walking along the way from one town to another, encircled by his closest followers, and then trailing along behind them, An endless stream of people. Our Lord saw this. Knew their hearts. That for many of them, they were following Him mindlessly. They were not informed followers. They didn't understand what what it meant to follow Christ. And so, He stops, turns around, stops them dead in their tracks. And the words that flow from our Lord's lips are stunning. 
If you were there, I bet we could see, almost see the crowd reeling backwards in shock at the demands which Jesus placed on His disciples. He lays down requirements that are unheard of. Now the concept of discipleship was very familiar to the first century world. It's, it's, a, it's a learner, mathetes in the Greek, it's simply a learner. Maybe a modern day equivalent is an apprentice, or someone who will follow, a leader, a master, and, and learn his trade, learn his vocation, learn his occupation. All masters had requirements for, for their disciples, such as length of time of commitment, level of knowledge. You have to have ability in certain areas of expertise. In some Greek circles, the, the disciples paid money to the masters, to the teachers. So having requirements was not unusual. What was radical, what was unusual was the kind of requirements, the level of requirements that Christ laid on them. Three requirements of discipleship. And again, outside of them, you cannot be a disciple of Christ. You can be in this group of people. Physically, you can be a part of this community. But spiritually, it is impossible. The first requirement is found in verse 26. Priority of loving Christ above one's family. Loving Christ above one's family. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, he cannot be my disciple. It is the most crucial tension in this text. Our Lord here requires every disciple to hate those whom He elsewhere has commanded us to love. We are told here that to be His disciples, you must hate your father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters. It takes us by surprise, and I'm sure it took the first listeners by surprise as well. Is he serious here? How are we to understand this? In Matthew 5.44, Christ commanded us to love our enemies. There's a contradiction here, Lord. You command us to love our enemies and hate members of our own family. How are we to understand this? How do we resolve this tension the answer is found by looking to the Scriptures. Any question we have, we go to the Bible, we go to the Word of God, and the answers are there. Matthew 10, 37, 38, Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who does not love, anyone who loves his friends, his siblings, his boyfriend or girlfriend, neighbor or stranger or anyone in this world more than me is not worthy of me. Here our Lord uses not the word hating, but loving more. And they are equal. They are equal ideas. So Christ's call is to love Him more. He will not be second place. He is zealous like the Father for His own glory, for His own honor. He is serious when He said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength. Our Lord understands that our sins are idol-producing factories and the chief idols that our hearts produce are people. That the chief idols of our hearts are not Graven images. It's not some statues. It's not some pictures on a wall. The chief idols that tempt us and and lead us away from loving Christ, loving God, people. People. Our sins 
Our sinful hearts want us to worship people rather than worship God. We, our sinful hearts want us to please people in the world rather than pleasing God. We rather have and possess people rather than possessing Christ. Our sinful hearts would rather have us want the affections, want the pleasure of people rather than the affections and the pleasure of God. The list is a deliberate descending order. Parents are listed first, then the spouse, then the children, and siblings last. So sorry, siblings, right? You guys are last in the totem pole. I at least tempted to love you more than Christ. But parents, we understand this, right? We must not manipulate our role as parents, manipulate our kids into faith. That we can be the greatest asset to our children to following Christ. At the same time, the greatest threat to our children. Because if they love Christ because they love us, they're not disciples of Christ. They must love Christ more than they love us. Husbands and wives equally. And then for parents, we understand temptation to be child-centered. Right? Practically, our lives revolve around our kids. Our schedules, our decisions, our whole lives revolve around our children's happiness rather than happiness of God. That is the case and our discipleship is threatened. And then again, siblings are last. Uh, maybe we shouldn't even put, put that on the list. I think most of us don't struggle with siblings, loving our siblings. Maybe a few of you, but... I mean, remember the test of Abraham in Genesis 22. The first time the word love is mentioned in the Bible is love not between husband and wife. Love not between siblings, but love between father and son. First time love is mentioned in the Bible. God gives this great gift to, gift to Abraham. A son that he has waited for his whole lifetime. A son of promise. And God said, I want to test your heart. Take your son whom you love and sacrifice him. Sacrifice him. God wanted to test Abraham to make sure that he loved God more. That he loved the giver of the gift more and the gift itself. The test was... Would he obey God's word? Or would he choose to love his son more than God's word? So that is why I have said at weddings, the shock of many non-cornerstone members telling the husband, hate your wife. Right? Telling the wife, hate your husband. I don't know, but I don't know. If, I don't think there, uh, there are too many uh, wedding sermons out there where the pastor has said to the husband, hate your wife. And hate your wife, hate your husband. Well, that's what separates us from non-Christian husbands and non-Christian wives. All parents love their children. Christian parents, what separates us is that we hate our kids. We hate them in in the sense that we love Christ more. It's not our children, you bless them, then I'll love you, Lord. I have these desires for my kids. I have these prayer requests. And if you answer all my prayer requests, then I'll love you. Then I'll worship you. Then I'll follow you. But if you don't answer this prayer request, then I'm not thankful. I'm not grateful. I'm not going to follow you. I'm not going to be thankful to you. Follow faithfully. We are to love Christ more. And... Humanly speaking, it might seem uh, it will hinder the gospel to people that we love, family members and friends who are not Christians. But in fact, it does exactly the opposite. It, it affirms the gospel. It makes Christ more beautiful to members of the family who are not followers of Christ. I experienced this firsthand with my dad. You know, when I became a Christian, it was crazy like I would like live in sin, and he didn't care at all. More I live for sin, more like he was like, go, go at it, James, right? I mean, I would drink with him, and he'd toast, right? I'd smoke with my dad. I confess, my dad caught me doing drugs. He didn't get angry. 
Right? No way. He even raised his voice. When I told him I'm following Christ, man, he got angry. I mean, he got violent. He got violently angry towards me, towards me when he heard me say, I'm going to follow Christ. And he pulled that old good son card. You know, Koreans, Korean culture, the worst you can be is a bad son. Like the, the highest virtue for a boy, for a son, is to be, you know, hoja, right? Sohi, is that right? Hoja, right? That's right. My Korean counselor there. <laughs> right, to be a hoja, it's like the ultimate. And he said, James, you're not, you're not a good son if you follow Christ. And I promised him, Dad, the only way I can be a good son is by following Christ. Only way. And, by, and, I, and it's true. Only way we can be a good father, mother, husband, wife, good son, daughter. Only way is by following Christ. And so, by God's grace, I did. And uh, from that moment on, I sought to love God first and foremost and, and to serve my dad. And he needed help around the store. He needed me to... Uh, fix, you know, take his car somewhere, he needed a ride somewhere, he needed help with some something or some paperwork, I was there to help him, serve him because of Christ, right? because I love Christ. And then uh, a few years ago, my wife was there, my dad turned to me and said, hey, you're a good son. Right? Praise God, not because of me, but because of the gospel, because I put Christ first. And that example humbled his heart and he became a Christian. For us to follow Christ in our own family, initially it might stumble them, but if anything, really, God's way is right and it works. It softens their heart for the gospel. A few questions for you in this area. A few test questions. Who rules your life? Who rules your heart? Who are you more worried about displeasing, offending, disappointing? Who are you more worried about wanting to please and satisfy? Your dad or mom, husband or wife? Whose happiness is the most important in your life? Is it your your son, your daughter? Some parents act like their child's happiness is the highest priority. They, They... they're not in the Word. They don't have time for prayer. But they have time, hours on end, strength, limitless strength to cater to their children. So who rules your life practically? Whose opinion is most important to you? Who do you live to please? Is it God or people? Is your family keeping you from obeying the clear commands of Scripture? Is your family keeping you from obeying the clear commands of Scripture? Are you willing to go against your parents, your spouse, your children, your siblings because of Christ and His Word? Are you standing for Christ in areas where they want you to compromise? Maybe they want you to cheat for them or lie for them. They're pressuring you to marry non-Christians. They're pressuring you to think unbiblically. They're pressuring you, hey, don't get too crazy about Christianity. Just go to church on Sundays. That's enough for you. Are you standing for Christ? Are you compromising there? Your commitment, is it to your friends? Or is it to Christ's church? Your greater, greatest love? Is it your devotion, your commitment? Is it to your non-Christian friends, non-Christian co-workers, or is it to the Christian church? His second requirement is given in verse 26. Above love for family, love for others, his second, commandment, second requirement is the priority of loving Christ above oneself. Loving Christ above oneself. Last part of verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate 
Yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. We must hate ourselves. We must love Christ more than ourselves. Verse 27, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. It is a picture of a condemned criminal carrying his cross to the place of his execution. The first century listeners and readers clearly understood what he meant by this. A condemned criminal was was forced to carry the instrument of his own death. A one-way journey of which in which he will not return. To take the cross was to carry the horizontal beam, but the patibulum of the cross usually passed during Mahab. Christ was telling his disciples and he's telling us that they must that they are to follow and literally face martyrdom. They are to have the willingness to face suffering, shame, persecution, and joyfully embrace even death because of their surpassing love for Jesus Christ. Our Lord warned them against this. Matthew 10, 21-22 Brother will betray brother to death. A father is child. Children will rebel against their parents. Have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me. And so, the New Testament believers responded by saying, Yes, Lord. The cost is high, but we joyfully pay the cost because we love Christ, because of the gospel, because of the forgiveness of our sins. Apostle Paul modeled this. Acts 20.24, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, my life is worth nothing. In Acts 21, the elders of Ephesus begged and pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem because they were waiting for him there to kill him. And he responded, Acts 21.13, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So Revelation 12:11 says, Of these faithful Christians who stood fast against persecution, vehement hatred, and martyrdom, Revelation 12:11 describes them and says of them, They overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Now, we don't experience that here in America. We have freedom of religion. I've met men and women who risked their lives for the cause of Christ. And they passed the test. They showed themselves true followers of Christ. The president of um, Almighty Institute, Bible Institute in Kazakhstan, his name was Oleg. He was telling us, Marcus knows, Bob knows we met him, how after he became a Christian, uh, before the uh, fall of uh, Soviet Union, how the KGB came after him. They took him to the woods, put a gun to his head, and told them to confess uh, and, and tell them all the Christians that he knew about the location of the church, and all the people that were involved in Christianity. He was taken onto the woods by the KGB with a gun pointed to his head, and he said, no, I will not compromise. I did not give up a single name. He said, you know, they had, they had fired him from his job, his family was poor, and now they were threatened to take my life. I did not deny my faith. I stood firm. By God's grace, they spared him of his life. Well, that is what Christ demanded of His disciples 2,000 years ago. And it continues to this day. Maybe not in Orange County, California, but to faithful Christians all over the world who are facing persecutions by the Word of God, they're standing firm. How much more ought we stand firm when our persecution is so trivial compared to what they're going through? Christians in Indonesia... 
Christians in India, Christians in uh, China, in the Muslim countries, they're facing threats to their lives. How much more ought we, must we stand fast to the minor persecutions that we endure as we live out our Christian lives here in America? Are we going to love our lives now more than Christ? Or are we all the more hate our own lives compared to loving Christ? And then finally, verses 28, um, verse, uh, excuse me, verse 33, the third demand, the priority of loving Christ above one's possessions. Therefore, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. None of you. Now, I'll briefly go through this. This is the second area of tension in this text. Our Lord was speaking literally here to the disciples who were following Him during His incarnational ministry. That was a requirement for them. Leave everything. Cast aside everything and follow after Him. This is exactly what the twelve disciples did. Luke 5.11 They pulled their boats up on shore, left everything and followed after Him. Luke 5.28, Matthew was a tax collector. He got up out of his tax collecting booth, left everything and followed Christ. Matthew 19.27, Peter answered him, Lord, we have left everything like you demanded, like the requirements for to be a disciple of Christ. We left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Again, Luke 18.28, we have left all, we had to follow you. That's why Christ, the, the rich young ruler, leave everything and follow after me. He wasn't giving that rich young ruler a special requirement. That was a requirement for all disciples of Christ during his incarnational ministry because it was so important for those three and a half years that they established Christ's ministry, his teaching example for the coming church. Now, post-death post-resurrection, post-ascension, this command is not literal, it's spiritual. This command is not for us to you know, become communists, right? communal living. Everybody gives up everything and we, you know, joint collection of all our possessions and uh, the elders kind of, you know, cut the pie and distribute it to the church because the New Testament was, is clear. New Testament believers have possessions. Barnabas sold some of his property and gave to the church. There is no example of believers in the New Testament of giving up all of their possessions. The, The principle here for us, the parallel principle for us, is as we love Christ more than our family, we love Christ more than ourselves, we must love Christ more than our material possessions, more than money. The greatest idol is people. The second greatest idol is money. Right. That's why Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, right, flee the love of money. Love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money is not evil. I have money right now in my pocket, Right? Money is not evil. Money is useful. Money is a tool. It's an instrument. That's all it is. It's just, right? But the love of money is a direct threat to our discipleship. So we can't follow Christ while loving money. We must love Christ more than material possessions. First John 2, 15-17 Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of the eyes, the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. Now, in the midst of this sandwich of these three requirements, our Lord gives us two parables on how he wants disciples to follow after him. He uses an illustration of a builder and a king going off to war and how it, 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 it's laughable for someone to start building without enough materials. It's absurd for a king to go against uh, a greater king in war 
that's not how they would do it. Everybody would laugh. No, he would first calculate if he's able to build this tower. A king will calculate if he's able to win this battle. So likewise, he wants the people to carefully consider these costs and consider whether they are willing to pay the price or not. And if they are not willing, they are free to go on their way. He does not want a compulsive decision. He does not want people to turn down the lights and sing sad songs, right? And uh, have people, you know, pray for you and, and tug at your heart and make emotional appeals to make a rash decision to follow Christ. Because what will happen is the Word of God is fixed. The demands of discipleship is unmoved. And when you come upon these demands... And you fall away, people will say, look at this guy. He tried to build and he didn't have, he didn't consider the cost. He went to war without considering the cost of war. He gives them pause, forces them to stop and consider and think before rashly committing to following Christ. Likewise for us. No rash decisions. No impulsive, uh, rash following of Christ. Consider in your heart. Understanding the cause. Loving Christ more than people. Loving Christ more than self. Loving Christ more than anything in this world. These are the three requirements of Christ. Consider, calculate, and only if you find yourself with a desire and a willingness to, to, to meet these costs should you follow after Christ. And then he gives us one more incentive. One more incentive. The uselessness of falsely following Christ. The uselessness of falsely following Christ. Verse 34 and 35. Therefore, salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless. With what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears, let him hear. A simple illustration. A salt that is not salty, what is it good for? Useful for nothing. So it is thrown out. It's not even good for the manure pile. Right. There's no... Even like used for fertilizer, right? It's not even good for that. It is thrown out. Therefore, parallel is a false follower of Christ. A person who outwardly follows Christ, but in their hearts, they love someone more. In their hearts, they love themselves more. In their hearts, they love things in the world more. Oh, utter uselessness. Of no profit. That person is wasting time, wasting energy, wasting effort. It's good for nothing. Why waste time? Go and live for that person you love. Go right now. You love that person. Go love that person. Right? You love yourself. Live for yourself. Go and live for yourself. Right? Don't be an object of of you know, a laughter, of disdain, of scorn by your neighbors. Go live for yourself. You love money more. You love things. Go live for these things, because just outwardly following me is of no use. Our Lord here is speaking on three levels. He's speaking on a national level. Our Lord is speaking to Israel. God called Israel in Deuteronomy to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The prophets have indicted Israel for not loving the Lord, for being faithless to Yahweh and loving idols. Our Lord confirms the indictment and judges it to be true. So he says, nation of Israel is good for nothing. Useless. Without profit. Only to be thrown out and cast aside. And that's exactly what Christ did by his, by his crucifixion and resurrection. On a local level, he's speaking to a future community called the church, speaking to us 
corporately. And he's telling us, he's warning us, that when a church loves a person, or loves self, or loves things like a, I don't know, like a building, or their reputation, or their possessions more than Christ, they are useless to Christ. Remember the church at Ephesus? Revelation 2, 4, and 5. A great church, a discerning church, a hard-working church. Christ said, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. You have forsaken your first love. You used to love me. You used to be so devoted to me. Now you've forsaken it. You love something else. Something else has replaced me in your hearts. You've set me aside and you love something else more. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and move your lampstand from its place. So a church that has forsaken its first love for Christ is a useless church to Christ. Remove its lampstand. It will no longer be evangelistic witness. No one will come to Christ through that church. And then finally he's speaking on an individual level. He's speaking to each one of us. As a great heart searcher, knowing our hearts. He's speaking to you this morning through Luke 14, 25 through 35. Let me give you me three marks that you are loving indeed Christ above all things. Three proofs that Christ is indeed your first love. I mean, simply, your priority is Christ's honor. Your priority is the glory of God in all things. Your life revolves around what pleases Christ. Christ rules your heart. Your decision making, how you make practical decisions in life, revolves around what honors the Lord, what pleases Him, what is consistent with the Word of God. You will not allow Him to be second place in your heart. You're fighting your flesh so that Christ will be preeminent in your affections. Secondly, second mark of loving Christ above all things is that your greatest desire for your family is their salvation. Your greatest desire. It's not for their finance. The greatest need of your our family is not money. It's not a house or, or whatever, I don't know some earthly uh, possession. Your greatest desire for your spouse, your children, your siblings, for your extended family members, it's for their salvation. And you are doing everything within your power to live out the gospel before them, to be above reproach in every way possible so that they might follow Christ. You're living your life where you're not indebted to them at all. They're indebted to you. And you live out this mindset. You don't want anything from them. You don't want anything. Like in a family, especially like families destroyed by money because everybody wants a piece of the pie. And your mindset is, I don't want anything. All I want is for you to follow Christ. All I want, if you're a Christian, is for you to grow in Christ. I don't have an agenda. I don't have any self-centered motive here in this family. I'm not loving you. I'm not coming to your deathbed so that you remember me in your will or you remember my children in your will. All I want, I don't want your money. I don't want any physical thing. I mean, I, I would love for you to love me, but I'm, that's not even my concern. My concern is that you would love Christ, that if you're a Christian, you would grow in Christ. And then thirdly, You are doing everything to uphold the gospel of Christ. 
right? uphold Christ, number one. The third one is uphold the gospel of Christ. Uh, I would contend that, uh, that a main reason we love Christ is because of the gospel, because of His cross, right? Without the cross, we would love Christ, but be- through the cross, He demonstrated God's love for us. So all the more we love Christ. So we don't want to do anything to undermine the gospel, to oppose the theology of the gospel, the practice of the gospel. We want to avoid anything that in any way weakens or damages the gospel of Christ. So, whether theologically, we want to, we don't want to undermine the exclusivity of the gospel. We don't want to undermine salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. We don't want to undermine theologically lordship salvation or in practice. We want to do everything possible to obey Christ's commands. But the fragrant aroma of Christ and His gospel flows from us to everyone. John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John fourteen twenty one. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Let's consider the cost of discipleship. The requirements that we agreed to when we first became Christians. Or maybe some of you, you've never agreed to these terms. You are coming to Christ on your own terms. You've established your own requirements. Well, that just will not do. It's salt without saltiness, if that is the case. These are the terms of Christ. These are the costs associated with following Christ. It's either His terms or none at all. If you have been following Christ on your own terms, repent this morning. An opportunity for you not to make a rash decision, an impulsive decision, for you to soberly do an inventory check. Is the willingness there? Is the desire there to pay these costs? to be a follower of Christ and make decisions accordingly. Lord, we see that it is impossible with man to be saved. Who would uh, agree to such terms? It, It offends our prideful hearts to the core. These, these requirements from a human perspective are absurd. They, you're asking too much. But to those whom you granted faith, to those whom, who are set apart as your people, whose eyes are opened, hearts warmed, whose souls enlarged to the truth of God's word. Lord, we are willing. We, for the joy set before us, desire to pay the cost of discipleship. With your help and with your grace, we joyfully resolve to love you more than anyone, more than ourselves, more than anything in this world. And as faithful Christians, we've seen in Hebrews 11, who considered reproach with you as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt, even to now, our hearts desire to be with you, carrying our cross, then all this world has to offer us. Lord, we pray that believers will be sobered by the reminder of the demands of discipleship, for those who do not trust in Christ, you cause them in humility and soberness to count the cost and to do what is in their heart to do. That if it is to live for the people in this world, to live for themselves, live for things, to do that. For it is useless to follow Christ 
while pursuing these things in their hearts. But if it's in their hearts, that they will love you with all their heart, soul, and mind and follow you all their days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.